The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. Now, if you're listening to this, the chances are that you live in a city. For the first time in human history, more than half the world's population does. And the trend in both the developed and developing world is clear. Migration will continue apace from countryside to cities. But as we pack ourselves ever closer together in our millions, the challenges for policymakers are all too visible. Pollution, slums, traffic and crime. So why are more and more people choosing this lifestyle and leaving the countryside to the farmers and nature? Joining me in the studio to discuss this, I have the Harvard economist Edward Glazer, author of a new book called The Triumph of the City. Alongside him, we've got two Guardian men, our architecture critic, Jonathan Glancy, and our environment editor, John Vidal. Welcome to you all. Edward, let's begin with you. Uh, this must be one of those you say tomato, I say tomato things, because you say triumph for the city, and I think of Toxteth, Britain over here, Chicago and Detroit in America, and these aren't great adverts for urban living. The remarkable thing is that despite the death of distance, despite the fact that we can all telecommute uh, around the world, uh, despite the fact that we could all live in whatever sylvan spot appeals to our love of nature, that many uh, of the world's cities are more vital, more successful, more dynamic than ever. That doesn't mean that all cities are. And cities like Detroit, not Chicago, actually. I would, I would differentiate between those, those two, two, but cities like, cities like Detroit and Liverpool and many cities of the, of the continent are, are cities that haven't yet managed to turn themselves around. Now, if you want to understand why some cities have been able to succeed and other cities have not, it's the – if you go back to the 18th century, cities, succeed, cities succeeded. Cities were able to reinvent themselves through a combination of skilled people, smart people, small firms, and connections to the globalized world. This is what made Birmingham great in the, in the 18th century. It's what made New York thrive in the age of Alexander Hamilton. And it's what makes cities succeed today. Um, but the industrial city moved away from that. The great, uh, you know, the industrial revolution itself, a child of, of urban, urban Britain. Henry Ford's uh, mass-produced automobiles created by the enormous entrepreneurs of Detroit in the early part of the, the 20th century, then produced these vast vertically integrated companies that were walled off from the outside world and provided lots of employment for less educated people, which on one level was a great thing, but on another level, it set the stage for a very difficult process of reinvention. Um, on the other hand, cities like New York and, and London have managed to come back because the same proximity that once got hogsheads onto clipper ships now enables smart people to learn from one another. And the reason why some cities have come back is, is because cities' urban proximity plays to what is humankind's greatest asset, our ability to learn from one another. Our, we come out of the womb with this remarkable ability to soak up information from the people who are near us and to create these collaborative chains of, of uh, invention which are you know, responsible for humankind's greatest hits from Athenian philosophy to Florentine Renaissance art to, to Facebook, which come out of, of cities and, and connection. And that's, that's what makes the difference. You, you've described cities just, just then as our greatest invention. But I'm slightly struck about whether you think the city is the invention or whether just having a cluster of human beings is actually the precondition to having lots of different great inventions. Well, the, the, the ability to bring people together, which is fundamentally what a city is, right? Cities, cities are at their heart, their absence of physical space between people and firms, their density, proximity, closeness. Our ability to have these centers, to, to connect with each other, and to do it in a way that now at least doesn't lead to a killing field, is, is, I believe, our greatest invention because it is the setting for all these other things, because, in fact, it enables these collaborative flourishes that are so important in humankind's history. Jonathan Glancy, does any of that ring true with you? It does. I mean, cities 
are what define most of us. Most half the world's population now live in cities, and of course, cities, civilizations, civis, citizen—it's all the same word. When human beings became civilized creatures, that means they lived in cities. And the first great things, the first great artifacts of enormous size beyond something they could hold in their hands, humans created, were cities. So you start in Samaria, off you go. Now the important thing is, though, very interestingly, humans. The aspiration for the city matters even more sometimes than its sort of brute economic function. If you take those very earliest cities and think of what they did, they weren't built primarily for the exchange of goods. They were built to celebrate or to connect with strange things that today we many of us find difficult to create to connect with gods for power of kings. Now, so the city was always something special. And to think of that idea, if you put together a cluster of people in a field or a desert, would they then suddenly generate masses of interesting technology and philosophies and ideas and music and dance and, and theatre and whatever else and newspapers? Because they can, could they do any of these things? Possibly, but I doubt it. The very point of the city is that it, it almost rises above the group of the people. And that's why also, of course, it has buildings and architecture that frame and celebrate those desires. And it's so important that, that you know, the, the architecture itself is the child of the city, right? I mean, Chicago in the 1880s is this place where genius comes together and creates the modern skyscraper. John Vidal, I, I find it really uh, interesting to listen to these two because most of what they say would be exactly what people don't think of when they think of cities. They think a place they want to escape from. Well, I think there's that, but I think I'd like to come back just a bit because, frankly, they're talking about um, rather rich first world cities which have done pretty well out of the last 150, 200 years. I spent a lot of my time wandering around some of the poorest cities of the world, like Lagos and Ethiopia and goodness, India, Indonesia. 60% of the world still, sort of, maybe a few, billions of people now live in slums, and that is getting more and more and more. And I don't think we can really talk about these being sort of the epitome of civilization. I mean, they are frankly fetid, ghastly, grim places where people do not want to live but have to live because they have to earn some money. Now, they may be good for the local economy, whatever, they keep people going, but nobody would want to live in most of these places. I'm sorry. Edward, defend slums. I'm happy to defend slums. Um, I think the, the you know, I, I see a lot of promise in place, places like Dharavi. I see I see a lot of uh, of change for the future, and, and there's really no future in rural, Dharavi's rural poverty. Dharavi is, is a yeah. vast slum. In, it was in, a setting in, for Slumdog Millionaire. It, it was, yeah. it was, and it's a place of incredible entrepreneurship. Right? There's a there's a you know, couple of guys making brasiers in one corner, and then some people recycling plastic somewhere else, and then there's then there's uh, some someone else who's making beautifully intricate pots. And cities are full of poor people in the developing world, not because cities are making people poor, but because they're attracting poor people with the promise of economic opportunity and with the ability to get out of rural poverty. Yes, Dharavi is, is awful, but so is rural India, right? These people don't have the option to live anywhere like the lives that we, that we live. And the slums for them are something of a change. They're something of a catalytic, catalytic agent. Um, and as such, I see a lot to liken. Uh, John Edward, I think it's worth thinking that... Um Take a great city like London, the one we're sitting in now, the one I was born in. Um, it had some of the worst conceivable slums. I mean, slums that you know would equate with the ones John mentions in other parts of the world today, poor parts of the world. And yet, um, 
by the very fact that people came in into those parts of London with and, and got out of them. You know, they they aspired, they moved forwards and upwards and outwards. Whether they were you know Jews coming from Russia to escape the pogroms or whoever they were, and today you know people from other parts of the world. And the city is one instrument that enables them to go uh, get above rural poverty and to move onwards. And upwards, that can't be such a bad I, thing. I, I, I completely agree that there's a there's a there's a progress from the slum to the the, the fixed settlement to the to the the much better built housing and whatever it is. But the difference is that what happened in the in the 19th century in London or or in in, in America um, is it cannot be compared to what's going on in Africa at the moment. There are no options there. There is no money coming in. There is no investment. There is no chance of these people ever getting out of that slum. Um, and uh, and the the problem is that the, that governments which have absolutely no money whatever cannot invest in them. Uh, there's no ownership. There's no, no, no proprietary rights. It's very different from London and the other cities. Where we, we crawled out of our slums pretty well but I fear that that other people are, are, are consigned to them really for the next hundred years at least and that's not acceptable well there's a there's a key central I mean a key central point here and, and some of some of what you said I agree with and, and some of it I, I do not but the, the key point is that an absence uh, a great deal of land hides many sins. And when you put huge numbers of people together in, in dense areas, it creates an enormous scope for people giving each other contagious diseases, for crime in, in other areas. If I'm close enough to exchange an idea with you face-to-face, I'm close enough to give you some awful, awful illness. Now, the, the developed world, cities, became healthy only through massive investments, right? I mean, American cities were spending as much on water at the start of the 20th century as the federal government was spending on everything except for the post office and the army, right? This was a massive, a massive investment. And you needed to do that to get from a point where at the start of the 20th century, life expectancy for boys born in New York was seven years less than the U.S. national average, and now it's more than two years. It's two years longer. Now, I don't. I'm just not as pessimistic about the Indian cities as much as I'm aware of the problems of, of India. I mean, I see those cities as being the pathways out of poverty into prosperity for for their countries. In the the more troubled though the government, the more failed the, the state, the less hope that we can have. And yet. I still think that there, we're more likely to get change in the government. We're more likely to get get the change that can happen through urban concentration than by through rural dispersal. But you're getting the political upheavals. You're, you're getting the uh, uh, everything which we're seeing in the Middle East now is coming out of the cities. All the discontent of the uh, of the of the poor is now expressing itself in the cities. And these but, are yeah. these are going to be the areas which will destabilize political systems. But is that a bad thing, John? It's no, not no, 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 saying it's a bad thing. Exactly. Because it's people coming together in the cities where you. You get this, you know, collective imagination but, at work. But John, the sparring. If you rewind, just I think John's got a point. If you rewind just two years, there was trouble in Cairo, and that wasn't leading to uprising against Mubarak. It was because landless poor couldn't afford bread. But that is true because they were in the cities rather than out in the countryside. And actually, if you to be poor in the countryside during a time of rising commodity prices, it's we're seeing is actually quite a good good place. What I'd like to know, though, I'd like to know actually from John whether it's the when we talk about. The side of the, you know, the very poor cities, is it the city itself that's the demon, or is it is poli- or is it political systems? No, people are being driven, as, as Ed was saying, people are being driven into into cities by um, by climate, by disasters, by uh, lack of food opportunity or job opportunities. But people are using cities in a different way. So people in Kibera, in, in, in Kenya, they're coming in and into the city, but then they're going back for three months of the year. They, they've got families in different places. The city is becoming a much more mobile, fluid place now than perhaps it was. Just 
just to be clear, while, while there, there can occasionally be food insecurity in cities, on most measures of, of well-being, including, you know, caloric intake, right, urban populations in the developing world are doing much better than, than rural populations are. Right? It's not as if... They, they earn they, more, but they, they, they don't necessarily they, eat more. I promise you that. <laughs> there's a fair amount of data that's cited in the book. They don't, they don't necessarily, but in fact, in, along many, many of the, these well-being dimensions, including their self-reported satisfaction, the, the urban populations typically report that they're, that they're doing much better. But it doesn't matter necessarily the role of bread prices or whatever in terms of creating the urban unrest. You know, these, if you go back throughout the cities that changed politics in, you know, in, in U.S. history, in French history, in Russian history, commodity prices have often played a role in, in generating that. But cities in all of these countries have, been the, have you know, played roles as being the handmaidens of various change. Now, not all that change was hopeful, right? Not all that change moved in the right direction, as 1917 St. Petersburg reminds us. But uh, it's it certainly is is um, I think there is some hope in the fact that you know Hosni Mubarak was pushed out by the by the mob and it's a remarkable statement about how new technologies are not making cities obsolete right it's been called the Facebook revolution but it wouldn't have happened if people had just blocked they had Mubarak had from their Facebook page they had to yeah. be there in the yeah. city and the city made that made that possible and you know I still think there's a reasonable hope that those you know those magic words Luft macht frei city air breathes you free will again you know be true in the in the Middle East okay that's the argument for cities let's just think a bit about how to make cities more livable there's a there's a section in your book edward when you talk about the green belt you 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 declaim it as making the lives of poor londoners worse tell us about that well the 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 problems with any form of restrictions on building and is that they you know make you know any any restrictions on supply make things more expensive now it doesn't mean that every restriction on supply is inappropriate right i mean i also take issue with a fair amount of preservationism but it doesn't mean that i believe in tearing up any of the greatest you know architectural monuments in, in cities i mean i, I uh, you know I, I consider these to be as as important as the Mona Lisa or as the Arnolfini marriage in the in the in the national gallery but we need to be aware that this is an area in which Jane Jacobs was wrong, right? Jane Jacobs famously looked at old buildings and new buildings. She noticed that old buildings were cheap and new buildings were expensive. So she decided the great way to keep New York cheap was to stop anyone from building new buildings on top of old buildings. Well, that's not how supply and demand works, right? If you actually keep density levels low and you keep the number, number of buildings low and you have rising demand for an area, then prices skyrocket. And you only need to look at her own Greenwich Village preserved in a historic district for the last 40 years, which moved from being an affordable place in the 1950s where she could live to a place with, you know, where hedge fund managers only can possibly buy in a $5 million townhouse. Now, again, it's a trade-off. I'm not, I'm not making the claim that we should, you know, that preservationism is, is in some sense always wrong or bad, but we need to be aware whenever, for it's a greenbelt reason or for a preservationist reason, anytime we shut off new supply, we are making, creating a potential affordability problem for ordinary people buying, buying housing. Well, up to a point. I think that, I mean, the, the, the danger is that you get this, this sort of market-driven, the endless city, the, what I would call the 100-mile city, which is just city after city blurring into each other um, and becoming a sort of an enormous sort of hole, which is, which is really pretty grim, um, with enormous health and other impacts. Um, and I think that the the intervention by governments and by social reformers to have uh, green spaces in, in cities or around cities has been probably one of the most civilizing uh, aspects of the last 150 years within cities. And so a city now without, without green parks and, and things is a city which is dead and there is no future now. Cities are organisms. I mean, that's one thing. It's interesting when we talk about them. But you can control them. Yeah, but they will. But by their nature, they like a sort of amoeba on a glass in a laboratory. They will just 
creeping over that glass across the laboratory table Ami- onto the floor. Well, they are, they are. They have an amoeba-like quality. You know, there's an attempt for cent- sorry, centuries, millennia, to wall them in, to contain them. The green belt's a modern version of that in a sense. It's trying to contain the city. Um, the, the, yeah, the idea of market forces, economic forces, driving the city ever bigger, and technological forces today as well that will allow you to do that. That's that's will all that will happen. Now, the, the difficulty for all of us is thinking: when do we control? What is the point where someone who steps in, who are the guardians, as it were, that step in and say, you know, this is how the city must be? But interestingly, right, there's this clash between um, the city. And the country or the city and the garden is a kind of almost perpetual one, isn't it? It goes back to ancient religious myths, creation myths. There was always the garden, wasn't there? There was the Garden of Eden, which is true for many religions, whatever you want to call it around the world. And there's the shining city, isn't there? The New Jerusalem, all that. And it seems like something that's almost wired into us, isn't there? That we're all a bit torn. And so the city is this kind of almost rapacious monster that we half love and then we know we need to rein in the beast and we're never quite sure how to do it. I, I should stress that I am considerably more enthusiastic about you know the, the building central London up than building it out. And indeed, one of the reasons why you know building up is valuable is that it enables the supply of housing without without building building out. So um, you know it's the you know I'm, I'm an economist. I, I have we don't exactly have an oath, but it's it's I, I must stick, stick true to the fact that if you restrict supply in a high demand area, you're going to push up prices. But if you ask me for my you know what I personally love love to see, it's the it's the flourishing of of new structures within the within the city that can actually enable lifestyles without cars and lifestyles that are that are benefited by the, all the wonderful things that happen. It's it's true. It's true. Cities in the sky, Jonathan. What cities in the sky, you know, long, I mean, sorry, cities began as cities in the sky. The very first ziggurat cities in Samaria were cities in the sky. There's always been this impulse to build upwards. But today, the environmental argument is actually, you know, is that is quite sound. One can argue it through very well that building up great termite nest like developments for humans is actually, just like a termite's nest is a very environmentally friendly design. So great big blocks of flats or mixed use buildings piling up close to underground stations and, and hubs of shops and banks and so on. That's actually a very sensible use. That the trouble is, what tends to happen is that all the bits in the centre, the prices, I'm saying, the prices get driven up and up and up and up. And we're seeing now in London um, buildings, high-rise buildings, being built by rapacious developers for for a kind of super rich we've never met before. This kind of new, this new sort of global intergalactic rich who are pumping out the prices. And therefore, those, the, the ideal of having that mix of people in a city who are, you know, the, the postman living, you know, next door to the school teacher and the high court judge and the businessman and the politician, I mean, it tends just not to happen. Edward, there's a lot in that, isn't there? Because if if we're not talking about slums and we think about cities in the first world, New York or London or wherever, we tend to think of the inner parts of those cities as being pretty much overrun with hedge funders or or, or the super rich. And the people who actually service that that local economy are sort of confined to the outskirts, have to be bussed in. Well, there there are the the rise in global inequality, right? The rise in inequality in in wealthy nations is not a problem that architecture can fix, right? It's just, it's it's not a problem that building, building new, new supply can fix. And while it is certainly true, I mean, the, the facts that were just stated are, are uncon- uncontrovertible, it still, you know, is true that new supply of whatever form is a way of handling demand. Now, 
Um, the more units, the better. If you're building a small number of units for the hyper-rich, you're not actually doing very much in terms of, of saving demand. But you only need to look at Chicago. And again, and to be clear, I'm not recommending a Chicago solution for London. But you, but Chicago has stayed affordable for ordinary Americans in a way that the way that New York and San Francisco has not, because Mayor Daley unleashed the cranes on Lake Michigan, and that doesn't just you know make make for affordable housing for the people who live there, but it also makes things more affordable for outlying areas which don't gentrify as quickly because of that. This is where it comes down to, in the end, planning and control and power and democratically accountable power, ideally, that at some point somebody somewhere has to say um, this part of the city must be available to people right across the social and income spectrum. Um, And that has been done. So it's been done in cities around the world. At the moment, very interestingly, out in, say, Rio, uh, the favelas there, the great hillside slums, quite a few of them are being um, very interestingly, as we know, the, the architect, what architects and planners call retrofitted. You know, they're, they're pulling them back into the city by fitting them with fresh water, of course, the drinking water, the clinics, the schools and so on. So you can make a slum a part of a city. That's one way of doing it. Or you can simply say, as happened in the, uh, London 100 years ago, the old London County Council said we're going to build houses for working class people, slum replacements that are going to be uh, effectively, you know, palaces for the people. They even use those words in their reports. And they built to an extraordinarily high standard houses and flats now, of course, that um, <laughs> the professional class... <laughs> chooses to buy and buys. Hmm. I mean, the, the majority of the world uh, still lives in what we call slums or unplanned settlements. Um, the problem there is not so much the housing. The housing actually can be quite quite reasonable. It's just that there is no ownership of it. And unless we somehow find ways for city authorities to give, uh, to provide services for people living in informal shack settlements and, I don't know, on the outsides of Kabul or, or wherever it is, then nothing will improve at all. It will go back down. The problem is that nobody's going to invest in water or in, 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 in buildings unless they think that there's going to be some uh, payment back. And at the moment, we're not seeing that. There are amazing groups like this at the Slum Dwellers Federation and whatever who are really helping people self-organize and and um, and really create the new cities. And, and these are going to be the, the really impressive things, I think, of the, of the next 50, 100 years because out of these will come perhaps the civilization. And I've seen, you know, favelas in Brazil and wherever. 20 years ago, they were grim. Today, they are very desirable, absolutely wonderful. It was rather funny, wasn't it? I don't know if anyone noticed uh, a little while ago, Prince Charles visited the Bombay slums and uh, he was fascinated by the very things that John's talking about, that people are doing things for themselves, they're trying to make these places work and become, as it were, more civilised, more livable. (laughs) The headlines in the papers at home were, Prince Charles says, let's build slums. Uh, final question, and I think we should turn the theoretical into the personal. Edward, do you live in a city? I, I, I do not. I'm, I'm an example of all that is all that is unholy <laughs> in the suburbs. In fact, in my in my own uh, own life, you know, I tell the um, I talk about this in, in part because I, I'm you know use my own story to illustrate uh, the folly of America's anti-urban policies. Our you know uh, enormous subsidization of home ownership, our subsidization of highways and low density areas, and the way that we structure our school system, which creates such a strong incentive for people to move outside of cities. Those those actually very harmful features of the of the U.S. are not, of course here in the UK and that's actually a, a blessing that you should be you should be ha- happy about but you know I tell the, I tell the story of how Henry David Thoreau goes out in the, lives in the woods and does burns down more than 300 
acres of prime conquered woodland to make the to make the point that if you love nature, uh, you know, it often makes sense to stay away from it, right? We're we're a very destructive species, and I, I think my own story, as as David Owen in Green Metropolis tells tells his story as well, also makes this clear that I certainly am doing a lot more more harm for the uh, to the environment than uh, uh, than when I was living in so in, in, just in to be urban precise, department. How far do you live from a city? Oh well, I can uh, takes it it takes me about twenty minutes to get to work. And and I, I can cross over and take my children to the um, the the to Waltham, which was the city that was the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution, which is actually the neighbouring town. What about my Guardian men? Are you two city dwellers? I'm, I'm a displaced person. I I my the only house I've ever owned, only lived in, really is the is, is up in Wales. Uh, but I am doomed to work in London, and so I sort of <laughs> I, I, I I travel back to the. This is why you're always going off to Lagos. <laughs> <laughs> Lagos is my third home. <laughs> Do I, uh, I live deep in the English countryside, and that's quite recent. And the reason for that, as a real city dweller by nature, is because I feel absolutely torn. I either like one or the other, the classic old view that I think contained beautiful cities are one thing and the countryside something else. And I love the idea of being able to live in one and the other. But the pull of the city, of course, is magnetic and I can see myself <laughs> coming back. So only at The Guardian could we have a half hour long discussion about the merits of cities with three people who don't live near one <laughs> <laughs> don't come for one <laughs> well that's nearly all we've got time for this week and you can join us next week for a special edition of the business podcast on George Osborne's budget but there is a link between cities and the Chancellor because next week one of the things that Mr Osborne is expected to announce is a subsidy for enterprise zones these would involve offering tax incentives to companies operating in areas around the country thought to be struggling Andrew Carter, the think tank Centre for Cities, explains. Enterprise zones are actually quite an old idea. They were first uh, presented uh, in, and introduced in the UK in 1980 uh, with the Conservative government of the time. And the idea was to try and stimulate additional job and job activity, jobs growth and enterprise activity in areas that were suffering from long-term industrial and economic decline. So places like, as they were, Canary Wharf in the, in the days of the 1980s before we had all the, uh, the new developments, or places in Salford or in the North Tyneside, places that were still suffering from some of the changes that we were seeing at a global level. And the idea was that they would provide a range of incentives, tax-based and planning uh, incentives, to encourage businesses to locate onto these zones uh, and therefore improve their profitability and therefore uh, improve the numbers of workers that they were uh, employing. The Centre for Cities thinks, in a sense, that enterprise zones uh, were very much of their time. Uh, they were they were possibly right in the 1980s where we were suffering, particularly in some of our urban areas, we were suffering from issues of urban dereliction and urban blight. Uh, parts, physical parts of our cities were uh, in severe uh, had severe issues around dereliction and that needed to be addressed. In truth, when we think about the 21st century economy and particularly emerging from a recession, what some of the challenges are, uh, we have some serious doubts as to whether the 1980s model uh, is appropriate for the 21st century. Um, particularly, I think, where we see the challenge now, uh, even more so than it probably was in the 1980s, is about jobs and growth. That means prioritising and focusing on uh, people, individuals, 
at the skills of those individuals and indeed businesses. And I think many of the policies that we saw in the 1980s were actually more focused on capital and land issues rather than people and skills issues. So what we're advocating is that if the government introduces enterprise zones in the 21st century, that they should be updated. We should learn the lessons from the 1980s and modify our policies accordingly. Andrew Carter there. Now, it really is it for this week. Just remains to me to thank Edward Glazer. His book, The Triumph for the City, is out now, published by Macmillan, and Jonathan Glancy and John Vidal. The producer this week was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Join us next week for that special budget podcast. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.